Thank you for listening to this sermon from Renaissance Church located in Montreal, Quebec. For more information about Renaissance Church, please visit our website, renaissancemtl.com. If you would like to know more about how you can partner up to see the gospel advance in Montreal, please send us an email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com. Briefly here by mentioning the, uh, uh, the first uh, little section he begins all this with in chapter 1. So I'm just going to read real quick verses 11 and 12 of chapter 1. I think James preached on these last week. It says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul then starts there, and he's going to talk about his life and about the gospel that was given to him. He received a gospel from the Lord, and he made a point to say he did not need any man's approval. He didn't need any human being to tell him it was good enough. He got it from the Lord. And so he says in verse 16, I did not immediately consult with anyone. I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. He does eventually go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and hangs out with Peter for a couple weeks, uh, but not to get approval from him. He just continues to preach the gospel. So before we jump into chapter 2, we need to know he said he got this gospel from the Lord, and he's astonished that the Galatians are turning away from it to a false gospel, and that he didn't need man's approval. So with that in mind, I want to jump into chapter 2. And just as we read these first five verses, just remember he's in the midst of sort of telling his story. Paul says in chapter 2, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who is with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek or a Gentile. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul preserves the freedom of the gospel. That's been a theme, and it will continue to be a theme in the book of Galatians, the freedom that we have in the gospel. So let's start at verse 1. He says, 14 years later, he goes to Jerusalem, and it might be confusing at first, because it seems here, as we'll talk about in the next section too, it seems as if he's saying he needs to go get approval now from man. One helpful thing about these sort of autobiographical sections that Paul gives is that we have the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, Luke walks through his life and tells us what happens. And uh, Luke tells us that he had three trips to Jerusalem. The first one is in shortly after his conversion to Christ in Acts 9, verses 26 and following. It's what's mentioned back in chapter 1, verse 18, when he goes up to visit Peter. Then there's another trip, which is mentioned in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30, and that's what we have here. This trip, he goes with Barnabas, and they are specifically there to bring aid to the church in Jerusalem. So Paul's with Barnabas, they're taking aid to the church there. And while there, Paul meets privately with the apostles to discuss the gospel. So that's kind of what's going on here. We'll talk about his third trip to Jerusalem in just a minute, because it's actually applicable to what we're talking about today. So he wants to make sure his message is the true gospel. He wants to make sure he says he's not running in vain. But he uses this word, a revelation. He says in verse 2, I went up because of a revelation. 
The idea is that God was uh, uh, directing him to go there. We see that throughout the book of Acts, right? God sort of directing Paul where to go. And he uses the same language in verse 12 when God gave him the gospel through a revelation. Thus, he isn't going to Jerusalem because he was afraid of the apostles or because he thought he needed extra approval, but because he had a revelation and he wanted to go, make sure he was not, as he says, running in vain. So then we might be kind of confused when we look at verse 3 and he starts talking about the circumcision of Titus. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament or biblical history, this can seem kind of out of the blue. And honestly, even if you are familiar with those things, it can still kind of seem out of the blue. Like, what on earth is he talking about here with uh, Titus? Verse 3, Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So what is he trying to say? What does that have to do with anything? Well, the next verses tell us that there were people who had come in to spy out their freedom in Christ, and Paul wasn't going to submit to them at all. Okay, so how does that work? And what does not circumcising Titus have to do with the freedom of the gospel? I think it's important to note first that throughout chapter 1, what Dylan preached a few weeks ago, James preached last week, there's this constant mention of a different gospel, a different gospel being preached to the Galatians, a different or contrary gospel that they are in danger of believing. And so we want to ask, what is this different gospel, and how does uh, Paul's actions with Titus preserve it? And that's where the third trip to Jerusalem, what I talked about a minute ago, is instructive. For just a moment, I want to go into Acts chapter 15, which uh, sheds some light on what's going on here in Galatians. So if you have just a minute, if you turn back in your Bible just a little bit to the book of Acts chapter 15, I'm going to read the first two verses of this. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. They said, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, which is probably what they're talking about within Galatians, having this debate, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. <clears throat> so this is what's going on with the Galatians. The church, as was mentioned last week, was very young when this book was written. I think James mentioned last week, it's one of the earliest books in the New Testament. And the Christians are really struggling with what to do with people who are coming to Christ who don't have the Jewish Old Testament background. See, if you were uh, a Jew in the Old Testament, circumcision was your physical marker to join the people of God. Every male in Israel had to do it. If you were an outsider, you wanted to join God's people, you had to do it. And you had to start following their customs and their laws. So the Jewish leaders at this time are thinking, that's great, our Messiah came. We can believe in him, but we still have to do those things, right? We still have to do all that. Isn't that what God told us we have to do? So they were con uh, saying that people had to continue in these laws after they came to Christ. And if you were a Gentile or a Greek, you had to do that as well. We see if we go down to verse 5 in Acts 15, the same thing. It says, some Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So this idea was prevalent it was the different gospel that they're talking about. You had to believe in Jesus and follow the Old Testament law. Any gospel that says you have to trust in Jesus and do something is a false gospel. Trusting in Jesus and, here it's being circumcised, trusting in Jesus and doing the works of the law. Faith in Jesus Christ and something is not the gospel. It's no longer good news, but it's a burdensome list of demands. So let's bring it back again to Galatians 2, 3. Keep your finger in Acts. We might head back there in a moment. But in the midst of recounting his story, Paul says that Titus was not forced 
by these false teachers, by this different gospel, uh, to acquiesce to their demands. And this preserved the gospel. In not circumcising Titus, something that to us probably is not a big deal, not something we think about very often, but to them it was a big deal. And by not doing this, Paul is making the point that Titus was saved by faith in Christ. He didn't have to add on works. He didn't have to add on extra things. He didn't have to do extra stuff. Those who wanted to come in and sort of spy out their freedom in Christ and add extra burdens on them, to them, Paul says he would not submit even for a moment. You know, Elise and I, we've been married for about seven and a half years, and in that time we have found that we have completely opposite movie tastes. If we try to pick a movie, sometimes we spend almost the length of a movie trying to just pick a movie. We cannot figure it out, we can't agree, and it's, it's an exercise in futility. But we've recently found that we, with some TV shows, we can get along. So we started to get into these, like, sort of, if it's like a mystery or detective, like kind of procedural shows. And I admit, most of them are pretty formulaic, right? You have the first two-thirds of the episode where you have a whole bunch of clues, and the clues don't seem to make any sense. They're all over the map. But then at the very end, when you know who did it and you know the story, all of a sudden those things that maybe didn't come together, all of a sudden you're like, oh, it all makes sense now, right? If you go back and you rewatch the episode, you're like, oh, this all makes perfect sense because I know who did it, I know what happened. And in that spirit, I want to look for just a moment at Acts chapter 16. Bear with me, I know it seems a bit strange, but we have a section here in Acts chapter 16 that would seem at first glance to confuse or to contradict what Paul's saying in Galatians. It seems confusing. Now some background, after what we just read a moment ago in Acts chapter 15, the apostles got together and said, no, you do not have to uh, follow the Old Testament law in order to be saved. And this is what Acts chapter 16 tells us. It says, Paul, I'm just going to read the first three verses, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. You might be thinking, what in the world? Why would Paul do this? He does this to Timothy because his father was a Gentile. Titus, who was a Gentile, he says, absolutely not, we will not do this. To Timothy, his other disciple, he says, yes. What's the difference? Why is Paul treating one one way and another a different way? And I think the key, in the spirit sort of of these TV shows, right, the key, the thing that helps us understand what's going on here is, again, the gospel. It's that faith in Jesus Christ alone is what saves. And we can see then that this isn't contradictory at all. In fact, it reinforces the message, right? See, in Galatians chapter 2, Paul isn't there to argue that the Mosaic law or circumcision or whatever it might be is inherently wicked or, or terrible, his problem is, is with those who are equating it with salvation. His problem is with those who are saying, unless you do this, you cannot be saved. Those who are adding it to salvation and putting a burden on someone, saying, believe in Jesus, oh, and you have to do all these other things. He's saying, look, in, with Timothy, again in Acts, with Timothy, a different disciple, he's saying, look, if it will help the gospel go forward to do this, fine. But if you're going to add it to the gospel, if you're going to add it to faith in Jesus, then we have a big problem. The problem is those saying you must do these things in order to be saved, right? Adding it to faith in Christ. 
Now, I recognize all this talk of the Old Testament law, all these things is, is kind of historical and sort of very sort of stuff that we don't really think about. And in this regard, I often think about, like, church clothes. Don't laugh. It's, it's my background in the south of the United States, right? But we recently got back from a trip to North Carolina. We went to our old church. It's in a rural North Carolina town. And if I were preaching there, I probably wouldn't wear this. I probably would wear a suit. That's because everyone there, the only people they've ever heard preach and they would ever hear preach, are wearing a suit. They'd probably be distracted if I wore this, thinking, what is this guy doing? Why doesn't he have a suit on? What's going on? I once, on a Wednesday night there, I got in trouble because I wore flip-flops in the house of the Lord. I remember thinking, you know, you guys would have had a big problem with Jesus. Like, man, like that would have been, been a big problem. But likewise, if I came in here today wearing like a super nice three-piece suit and all this stuff, you probably would be a little bit distracted. Like, what is this guy doing? Why is he, why is he wearing that? It, it makes no sense, right? The point is, it's not about clothes at all. The point is, neither way is necessarily right, necessarily wrong, right? If it will help the gospel message go forth, I don't wear what's acceptable in a certain place, right? It's neither right nor wrong. It's like he has with Timothy. Again, Timothy back in Acts. If it will help the gospel message go forth, then he'll do it. But if someone says to me, well, David, if you're actually a Christian, if you really want to be saved, you have to wear a suit. Or David, if you really want to be saved, if you're really a Christian, you better wear shorts or you better wear sweatpants or whatever. If you, you, to really be saved, you have to wear blank. Then we're going to have a big problem, right? This is not a matter of indifference. It's not a matter of neither way being right and wrong. If they start saying that's part of the gospel, that's part of what saves you, then they're doing exactly what these false teachers did in Galatia, right? That's the point. The point is that someone who adds to the gospel must not be believed. The preservation of the gospel, the freedom we have in the gospel, is paramount in those situations. Thus we see in Galatians 2, in Galatians 2, 1 through 5, that the freedom of the gospel is preserved. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Not Jesus plus the Old Testament law. Not Jesus plus wearing certain clothes. Not Jesus plus anything. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul preserved that freedom by not yielding to those who would add man-made laws to and burdens to the Galatians. Let's move now to verses 6 through 9. He says, And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, Cephas is Peter, James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So here we see that the gospel message was approved by the apostles. But as I mentioned earlier, this section too can seem a bit confusing, right? Why is Paul going and putting his message before man? He has already said he got it from Jesus Christ and he doesn't need anyone's approval, so what is he doing? 
Again, we want to put it in context. He says in verse 2 that he came up by a revelation of God. And he says in verse 6, right, what he says in that, that it might be in parentheses in your Bible or, or set off somehow. He says, what they were makes no difference to me, for God shows no partiality, right? So he's saying, look, I know that many people say they're influential. And I understand why. But ultimately, they're, you know, we're all equal before God. Yet, let's also remember Paul's opponents. They wanted to place extra Old Testament requirements on those coming to Christ. They wanted to dismiss the message of Paul. And so Paul's saying, look, in in chapter 1, he's saying, listen, I got my message straight from Jesus. So if you have a problem with my message, it's from him. And secondly, sorry, and secondly, those who walked closest with Jesus when he was here on earth, guess what? They didn't add anything to my message. Verse 6 says, they added nothing to me. They added nothing to his teaching. And I think it's important that who's mentioned here, right? Verse 9 says James and Cephas and John. Cephas, again, is sort of another name for, for Peter. And if you've read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll know, you'll note those three names, Peter, James, and John. They were very close to Jesus. If you think of like in Matthew 17, when Jesus goes up to the Mount of Transfiguration, he doesn't bring all the disciples, but Peter, James, and John are with him. So those people who are not adding anything to Paul's message, who are saying you're preaching the right gospel, they're the ones who were closest to Jesus, who were adding nothing to his teaching. They had intimate access to the Lord while he was on earth, and they add nothing to his teaching. No Old Testament requirements, no extra do this, nothing like that. They're saying, yes, Paul is preaching the gospel. And with this, when they saw that Paul was uniquely gifted to preach to the Gentiles, it says they gave him the right hand of fellowship. Thus, Paul demonstrates unity and coherence with the other apostles. Paul isn't a renegade, innovator, doing something brand new. No, his message is the same one that's been preached by the apostles since Christ rose. It's not unique to Paul. He's in agreement with the Lord and with these pillars, right? He mentions here, at least in my translation, they were seen as pillars, right? Because they were those who were so close to the Lord. He's saying that if you believe that false gospel that's going around, that you need to to add extra works, to add extra things. You're not only going against the Lord, but against those who walked with the Lord. Against, if anyone would know exactly what he was preaching and saying, it was them. So he's demonstrating that the gospel he preaches is reliable. But there's one more brief thing about this I want to explore, and it'll, it'll be brief, but I want to jump ahead for just a moment to verses 11 through 14, because we have an interesting story here. Verse 11 says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, so this is again talking about Peter, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. That's these false teachers. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Now again, I know, understand in our modern context these things can seem a little bit confusing. Like we don't have the same issues with Jew and Gentile and all this in our churches. So what's going on here? Well, Peter, who as we see in verses 6 through 9, had agreed with Paul that your message is, is correct, who had agreed that these extra commandments should not be added to the gospel, well, Peter was separating from Gentile Christians when this, these false teachers came. And some Jews were following him. 
We know, again, in the book of Acts, when it talks about Peter and how he had a vision from the Lord that he didn't have to follow certain Old Testament food laws, we see he's following these laws, and our basic problem comes in Paul's question. If you look here at the end, he says, if you that would Jew live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force, it's the same word used in verse 3 with Titus, right? Force the Gentiles to live like Jews. Peter, out of fear of those preaching the false gospel, was leading Jewish Christians to shun Gentile Christians because they weren't following the rules. So Peter was leading this group uh, to basically say, look, you're not following the Old Testament rules, so we're going we're gonna to back away from you. And since, as Paul put it, his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, he rebukes Peter publicly. And to be fair, we have no evidence in Acts or anywhere in the New Testament that Peter uh, fought this or said Paul was wrong. In fact, uh, any evidence we have shows that Peter realized his fault. And what's my point? The point is to talk and think about authority. The apostles were authoritative figures in the early church, and for good reason, right? They had walked with Jesus. They approved this gospel message, and as those closest to Christ, that should carry some weight. Yet they even themselves had to submit to it and live in accordance with it. Not even Peter, Peter who is so close to Jesus, Peter who, who, who did so much with the Lord, not even Peter was allowed to add extra laws to the gospel. Not even Peter was allowed to say, eh, well, you should probably eat these foods or not those foods or what have you. Even he is under the teaching of Christ. Just like Paul would not allow Titus to be forced uh, to be circumcised, he's the same word talking about Peter. He cannot force Gentile Christians to, as it says, live like Jews or keep these extra laws. The Gospels are proved by the apostles, and that's important because they walked with Jesus, but even they needed to be rebuked if they began to lead people to believe a false gospel. So let's look at our last verse for today, verse 10. It says, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So having been saved by faith, we are now eager to do good. It says to remember the poor. It's a consistent New Testament admonition, right? It's close to the heart of God and it should be close to the heart of God's people. Remember, Paul at the time is in Jerusalem to give aid to churches that need it. He and Barnabas had gone there to help those in need. And the reality is it could be easy for me to sit up here and talk for a long time and tell you all how much you need to start caring more for the poor and how uh, you're not doing a good job and how you need to do that. Because it's a good thing and it is important. But even here, I want to keep Paul's message in mind. Thus, I think the word eager in verse 10 is very important. See, verse 10 doesn't say, only they asked us to remember the poor because by doing so we could earn more of God's favor doesn't say, only they asked us to remember the poor so we'd have a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling inside. And it absolutely doesn't say, only they asked us to remember the poor because our salvation is dependent upon us doing good works. No, it says, they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Paul was eager to help those in need. It brings us to the crux of salvation, right? The mystery of God's saving work. Throughout the scriptures, you know, we learn that when we're in Christ, we're new creation, it's prophesied that when we come to Christ uh, in Ezekiel, it says, take out a heart of stone and give a heart of flesh. You have a new heart that longs to do good. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, a new heart. Things we once loved, we don't love so much anymore. We're changed. 
we had no desire for the poor, now we do. Or if we are crushed under the burden of trying to earn salvation by doing enough good works, we can now be free. Like Paul, we should be eager to serve, eager to help. Not helping the poor out of compulsion, or as just one more joyless duty to add to our to-do list. Not out of guilt that, well, I guess, uh, I, guess I'm, I must do this. I guess I'm forced to. No, having placed our faith in Christ, we're freely justified. We have peace with God. We've been unconditionally, radically loved, and we are eager to share that with the world. I want to make it practical for just a second. Stephen opened our service this morning by celebrating the food bank yesterday. And it's a great thing to celebrate. It's a tangible way that we can remember those in need. Full disclosure, I was not able to be there yesterday. I've been there in the past. But I want to ask for a second. Why do we celebrate the food bank? Why do volunteers from our church serve food, give their time, and seek to help our community? Do those who serve at the food bank, when we do, do we do so because we can earn more of God's love? I don't think so. Does God love, you know, for, the, for those who helped out, does God love them more now than he did on Thursday and Friday before the food bank? No. It's our church's longing. We're eager to serve those in the community. We understand that we can only be right before God through faith in Christ. Stephen put it well. It's such a beautiful picture of the gospel, right? We've been unconditionally freely loved, and now we long, we desire, we are eager to spread that in our community. It isn't a heavy burden. It's a joyful privilege. Those who helped yesterday are not any more saved today than they were on Friday, but they did have a joyful privilege, an opportunity to serve those in need. And when we meditate on the gospel, how can we not be eager to do good works? It's the message, really, uh, if you want to read more on this, of the whole book of James in the New Testament, right? I won't go into detail. Many throughout history have tried to put these two books at odds, right? Galatians and James, is that they're teaching different things. But the idea is the same. It's that faith in Christ changes you. It results in a changed attitude. Here we must ask, do we seek to earn God's favor through doing good? Or do we do good out of an overflowing love and gratitude for the God who saved us? Out of overflowing longing to see his glory and his love spread throughout the earth. When we meditate on the reality that God saved us, those of us who don't deserve it, how can we not long to live in this way and be eager to do good works, having been saved by faith? As we close today, I want to think about how we can apply this text to our lives. The first thing I want to say is to check our hearts. Be honest with ourselves. Do we truly believe that Christ alone can save? Or do we still listen to that little voice in the back of our head telling us to do more, be a little bit better, clean yourself up a little more? Do we let man-made requirements weigh us down? Be, Be on guard against thinking that we can earn our salvation. Trust in Christ and cling to Him only. I think it's important, too, to remember Uh, Really, the second thing is just to remember the point from last week's sermon. If you weren't here, the point was transformed lives are evidence of a life-changing gospel. Do we live a transformed life? Do you submit your thinking and your way of life to the truth of the gospel? Are we eager to remember those in need? Do we desire to help those in need? I know this can uh, sometimes seem contradictory or confusing, this way of, of speaking, 
if you don't know me, I'm a, a PhD student at McGill studying the Protestant Reformation. So like Galatians and Reformation is like kind of a huge deal. Um, and I read a lot of Catholic versus Protestant sort of early arguments with each other. And if you're unfamiliar with the Reformation, the like really, really super short, probably way too short version is the Catholic Church at the time was very corrupt. It added a lot of rules and, and, and procedures so that you could earn your salvation. And Martin Luther was a monk, and he was trying desperately to follow all these rules. He was trying desperately to do it right. He was, first time he was serving communion, he spilled a little bit of the, the wine, and he just, he lost it. He thought he was, he was like eternally done because he had, he had messed up, right? He was terrified of God. He was terrified that God was this mean, micromanaging boss who was just ready to crush him if he slipped up. Yet he read through Galatians and Romans, and he began to come to the realization that he didn't need to work for his salvation, like he had been taught. And he boldly preached the message that human beings are justified, i.e. they are made right before God by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And if you read the, the Catholic opponents of his, one of the earliest things they said to him, and they continued to say throughout his life, was, look, if we preach that message, all we're really doing is just letting people go around and live however they want, they would say, Luther, look, if we, the reason we added works to salvation was to kind of keep people in line, because if we don't make works part of their salvation, they're just going to live sort of however they want. Yet Luther and others, as you search the scriptures, as they search the scriptures, couldn't help but notice that this thinking completely misses the transforming work of Christ. If we place our faith in Christ, not trusting in our goodness or our works, we're free no longer slaves to sin, no longer slaves to man-made laws or rules, but we are united with Christ. We grow in love for Christ and we develop a love, an eagerness to do good. So we can do so freely without this burden of thinking, my good works are earning me some sort of favor. We do good out of hearts that have been transformed by God's love. Today, if you don't have faith in Christ, if you think you can work hard enough, do well enough, you just need to get a little bit better. I encourage you to turn from yourself today and trust in Christ. As Paul's at pains to remind us we cannot be saved on our own. We need a Savior. And our faithful God provided one in Jesus. He was crucified and the punishment that was put on him is what we deserve. Then, defeating death, he rose from the grave. Trust in him today. He's taken your sins on himself and you don't have to carry that. If you want to know more about what it means to trust in Jesus, I'd be happy to talk with you after service. I'm sure Dylan would, Stephen would. I'm sure any member here would be happy to talk with you about that. And for those of us who do believe, let's reflect on our salvation. Reflect on the work of Jesus. I know that I can often be tempted to think like, yes, I know God saved me, that's what he did, but man, it's kind of on me every day to do well enough and sort of keep it going, right? I better not, better not mess up. And that's a burden that the gospel should lift from us. Instead, let's reflect on Christ, reflect on his love and his work, and that will transform us and make us eager and joyful to walk in love. I'm reminded of the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. I'm going to read them real quick. It says, Paul also writing, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Salvation is a gift of God. When we receive that gift, we are eager to walk in good works.
Let us be those who are grateful for, for a salvation we didn't deserve, who trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Renaissance Church. If you have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more, please feel free to contact us by email at renaissance.mtl.gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. It's our passion to love Jesus, love each other, and love our world.